Welcome, this is Coppercasts, a show dedicated to exploring the wonderful, if somewhat technical, world of institutional investment in crypto assets. I'm your host, Tyler Kenyon, and our guest today is Konstantin Anisimov, the executive director of CEX.io. Konstantin was born in Estonia, but came to the UK at 18 to study electronic engineering at the University of Leeds. After graduating, he worked for many years doing full-cycle product development, eventually occupying a CTO role. From there, he went to Cambridge University to obtain an MBA and gain greater understanding of the commercial side of the roles he'd already been doing. When he was introduced to blockchain, it immediately appealed to his engineering mind, even though the crypto side of it was still ancillary. Nowadays, he finds himself headlong in the world of crypto as an exchange's executive director and a regular media commentator. Constantin, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Great. Um, so in your show and tell segment, which if our listeners haven't seen, they should definitely go to the Coppercast uh, YouTube page or see it on our, on our social channels. You talk about the explosive growth of DeFi this year. And on paper, it obviously looks really good because there's been huge growth. Um, but there's no shortage of negative press around it, you know, like you know, scams, rug pulling, um, lack of regulations and stuff like that. So expand a little bit on your enthusiasm for, for DeFi, um, what you think it means for you know, the space writ large, what you think it means for traditional finance. Let's, let's just get into DeFi. Okay, so a couple of things that come to mind here. First of all, uh, where we are in the macroeconomic, um, from the macroeconomic side is that the the returns on traditional asset classes are becoming close to zero in some time, in some situations even negative. Um, and um, asset managers have to keep on creating returns somehow. So I think it's, it's, it's in some way natural that something like DeFi suddenly appears uh, because there's an ever, um, ever growing surge for higher returns through different, um, different approaches to finance. Um, this is, this is purely because of what is happening in the world right now. At the same time, I feel that the reason why DeFi is actually possible and exists is, is because of the underlying blockchain technology and the new ways that the blockchain technology can be used. So the, the first wave, if you say so, would, would be the cryptocurrencies. And now uh, people have found ways of using the same technology to create more complex instruments like credit institutions, insurance products, automated, automated market making, uh, distributed exchanges, etc. I think it's just the start. So I is that like, uh, I mean, when you, when you talk about the evolution, you know, the first step out of traditional finance, maybe is like the cryptocurrencies themselves. I mean, asset managers can build um, fairly complex strategies around that, like crypto hedge funds yeah. um, to generate huge yields, you know, yeah. already. So, I mean, where where's the additional benefit of DeFi, like what am I missing that like I don't think I think crypto is enough. Like why can't we just stick with crypto? Okay, well, the, what? There's, well there's no middleman in DeFi. It's it's as efficient in theory. It's as efficient as it can be. In reality, it's nowhere near being as efficient as it can be yet. But it's it's in many ways a utopian dream, uh, which I believe that this is the natural development of technology. That um, um it, it's kind of in some ways similar to the um ongoing discussion about active versus passive investment funds. And there are still people who believe that active fund managers can, can generate higher alpha, yet the, the, the numbers say otherwise, mm -hmm. right? It's for an average investor, it's way better to invest into a passive index fund. And I think this is um, kind of similar to that. I think those, those automated uh, DeFi projects will naturally evolve into the crypto index funds. And I mean, how far away 
is that uh, I, I mean, <laughs> DeFi's been around for a little while already. Yeah. I mean, it's mostly been known in the crypto space for the last year. Yeah. Um, and some of the other risks that you, that you highlighted in the uh, the show and tell segment, um, you know, some they're still prevalent. So, what are the natural next steps to take DeFi into more serious institutions? This is a tough question. I think it, it's we don't know. I think this is yeah. one of the great things about DeFi at this point in time is is it, it's a an innovation machine, and we don't know where it will go. We don't know how it will develop. All I know is that with time, the technology and the methods that I, I really have faith in humanity that there are on average more good thinking people than the bad thinking people. And overall, um, the, these projects will become more and more solid. Okay. Um, and in because you have no middlemen, because it's all very, very efficient from the technical point of view, over time, these should become um, way more efficient than traditional finance. Um, in, in some ways, the, the these projects could be a threat to, say, the banking sector because if if that is somehow worked out, then you don't need the financial sector as as such. You can have everything running in contracts. Again, utopian, mm. very very distant, <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> but shared by many people, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, so the attention that's been cast on on DeFi at the moment largely related to the amount of. USD equivalent locked in smart contracts. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of that, if any, of it is related to you know the the price action in cryptocurrencies much more widely right now? I mean, Bitcoin is approaching its all time high. Um, it's been on a bull run that's you know kind of matching 2017, 2018. So are these are these correlated? Is there is it necessary for you know Bitcoin to increase in you know people's mind and value in order for DeFi to increase in people's mind and value? Um, I think there's a definite correlation between uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and altcoins in general. And if we can class DeFi as, as kind of a sub-segment of alternative coins. Um, um, so there's, there's a definite correlation. However, if you look at how much, um, say, the Bitcoin price increased over the course of the year, it's, it's probably just over doubled, right? Uh, whereas if you look at the value locked within DeFi, it's, it's more like 10x. Yeah. So I don't think... There is a positive correlation, but it's it's not a, a magnitude of one. It's probably a magnitude of 10, um, which in some ways explains how you can generate higher returns through, through DeFi than Bitcoin. However, there are also much higher risks. So yeah. everything makes sense. And, and a lot of DeFi at the moment, is, I mean, it's built on the Ethereum blockchain. It is, yes. Uh, and Ethereum is going through its own big movements this year towards, or next year, I guess at this point, uh, towards ETH 2.0. Yep. Um, so, I mean, that must pose risks for the entire DeFi community. It, it, in some ways, it must. In other ways, it could be the springboard for the next level of um, innovation, which we don't know. And and I know there are many projects who are trying to build DeFi um, communities on other blockchains. So it doesn't have to be Ethereum. However, I personally believe there's enough of a network effect within the Ethereum community that it's it's going to be very hard. Um, however, it's not impossible. But it's going to be very hard to persuade the masses to switch to another new network. I mean, we, we've seen a similar thing when Android came out, Google came out with Android and said they were going to create a, an OS for a new phone. Everybody laughed at them and said it was impossible, yet they managed to do it. So it, these things happen sometimes. Yeah, I think I stopped laughing at, at Google <laughs> when they said they're going to do something 10 years ago. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I guess one of the other things to think about, um, one of the major on-ramps into DeFi is um, stablecoins, like wrapping a stablecoin. Um and stablecoins are, of course, or mostly based on USD 
or uh, another fiat currency. So are there risks that um, regulations will come into place limiting the usefulness or the value of stable coins and therefore you know a knock-on effect in DeFi is it just becomes harder to lock value in smart contracts like how, how important are, are stable coins to the ecosystem do you think I, I think there's definite risks from regulation because I oh, first of all I've I've seen some of the text in the Mika regulation for the European Union and they specifically within that they talk about stable coins but then they segregate uh, what they call strategic stable coins. So it's a stable coin that is of strategic importance for the European zone, and that will be regulated in a different way to all of the other stable coins in Europe. I'm pretty sure the US will try and do a similar thing, and, and there will be a knock-on effect. Um, central bank digital currencies will, will start coming in. So we just don't know how this will untangle. Um, however, I'm from my point of view, I mean, the, the main reason why... I, uh, stable coins have been used so much within DeFi is because uh, the people who invest the funds, they want reassurance that the volatility will not affect their investments uh, as much due to impermanent losses, etc. As Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, ev evolve as cryptocurrencies, their volatility will also be reduced over time and there may not be a necessity for stable coins. Mm. So I think... if what is happening is, is cryptocurrencies are becoming more and more mainstream, as, as you've already alluded to. And as that is happening, I expect less and less volatility in, in, the, um, in the front runners within the cryptocurrencies. And then, because those are not in any way connected to fiat currencies, that is your, I guess, hedge against that. And, I mean, you, you mentioned there briefly um, CBDC, central bank digital currencies. Uh, you know, if, if the EU were to come out with one, if the UK did one, if the US did one, would that replace the stable coins that you see right now? Do you think people would favor a CBDC over a stable coin? Um, I think we need to define people here. Sure. And, and there will be, <laughs> there will be different, different yeah. classes of, of people. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure the, the ones who are specifically the proponents of DeFi are on average against regulation and against government control. And, and that pool of people if anything, will not shrink. I think it mm. may even grow over time. So I, I think there's a merit and there's a reason for both to keep on um, existing side by side. Whether governments will like that or not, that's a different subject. Sure. I, I, would it be possible that, I mean, most people, when they talk about CBDCs, the benefits thereof, it's, it's usually centered around you know international remittances and things like that. So I, I suppose it would be possible in the construction of a CBDC to limit its ability to be used in a smart contract, you know, for DeFi. And in that sense, it would sort of segregate those two audiences and allow two different, you know, yeah. markets uh, to persist. Unless you wrap that CBDC around <laughs> Ethereum token and then you can use it and it's completely one-to-one. -one. So I think people have worked that out already. Do you lean towards that like are you in favor of a cbdc that's um easily wrapped and enterable I, into DeFi? well no no i i wouldn't say so i don't think I'm, I'm not expressing my opinion here i'm just saying that technologically it's already available sure so we we there's no point um i guess there's there's little point about discussing whether that's possible it's already technologically possible and i don't think the governments can stop that in any way because the technology is there um I think with regards to CBDCs, I'd like to, to make some points. I, hmm. I think remittances is, in my mind, it's not the main benefit from, for the governments at least. Uh, the, the, there are some other interesting factors, which is 
Um, if you compare a market economy to a state-driven economy, if you look at how our fiscal and monetary policies are happening, say, in the UK, there's usually a lag of anywhere between 18 months and two years between the measurements and the effects actually taken. If you have a central bank digital currency, in theory, you can have real-time feedback about the um, health of the economy and the government can take actions immediately, which is exactly what China is doing at the moment. And the the kind of, in my mind, the the holy grail here is that you can, in theory, if you do it right, you can have direct and, and uh, real-time control of your macroeconomic situation while keeping the privacy of your um, citizens, mm-hmm. which previously was not possible without the blockchain technology. So, I mean, China is quite far advanced in their um, experimentation or rollout of, of the digital currency, and everybody's watching it closely. Um, I think I saw last week the U.S. Intelligence Committee has provided you know memos to um, the SEC about you know the risks to, to to U.S. national security if if China rolls out first and you know becomes a, a global reserve currency on that basis. Um, I mean, how quickly or how how closely do you watch China's development here? I uh, I think in order to watch China's development closely, you probably would want to speak Chinese (laughs) (laughs) because a lot of the news are are not translated and and um, in my in my previous role I was in charge of setting up an office in mainland China and I've I've kind of had the the introduction into the culture and and I've traveled around the world quite a lot and been to many countries this is one of the most segregated communities I've ever seen you can't to the point when I was staying there I couldn't use my cash I couldn't use debit or credit cards. So without a Chinese person next to me, I wasn't able to do anything. Mm. Um, so I think it's very hard to to watch it closely from here. We can only make uh, assumptions, I guess, mm. from what the media wants to expose through the firewall. And I guess like there's limited learnings we can take from that trial as well, because you know our our borders are a lot, I guess, more open and it's yep. easier to transact internationally yep. here. So so what can we really learn from that anyway? Um, but but at the same time, China has so many people living there. So it, it's um, I think the, the, again, it's it's the network effect. If they do it right, even if it's not completely private and secure, uh, and the, it may not be a model that is um, possible to be applied in the in the Western community. However, uh, the network effect of that could be huge, and I, I believe I agree with the SEC's remarks on the fact that there can be strategic importance for the U.S. Uh, in in keeping their dominance with the dollar as the traded traded um, traded currency, because um, a digital currency is much easier for, as you said, remittances and um, and payment methods and and things like that. So uh, I think that's a real threat. Yes, I mean closer to home. So we're recording this in, in London. Um, what about for a, a GB a digital pound or a digital euro? Are what are the main benefits of that? Well, we, I mean, we've seen what happened in 2020, right? So everybody forgot what cash was. Um, I remember going to um, festivals in Hyde Park a couple of years ago, and you could only pay cash. They wouldn't take cards. Now it's the exact opposite. They only yeah. take cards and not cash. Well, um, again, having been to China a couple of years ago, nobody uses cards. Everybody used Apple Pay and WeChat Pay with QR codes. So why can't we do the same? And, and it is just so much more convenient. It's instant, it's cheaper. Uh, there's, less, there's less people in the chain. There's less 
number of companies in the chain, which makes the whole thing more efficient. Um, I guess I guess the flip side is you do, in theory, lose privacy. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm sure this is why the implementation in, in the UK, the US is going to take longer because I, I hope the governments will look at those things and make sure they develop something that keeps the privacy, but, but also gives them the controls they require. Um, and, and at the same time, I don't think, um, actually, the, the other thing I'd like to point out is the security of cryptocurrencies and, and hopefully, uh, hopefully CBDCs will be based on some sort of cryptology as well. And that means uh, it's much harder to lose your cash or your money, digital money, whatever they're going to call it. Yeah, or at least easier to get it back. <laughs> well, um, so thinking about the way governments approach these, then um, regulating the space we operate in now, just cryptocurrency space, uh, it's it's quite fragmented. You know, every country's taking almost a different approach. There's a few, you know, supranational, regional level discussions. Um, how beneficial are those? Like, how close are they to being the accepted doctrine and you know the accepted framework from which we can all work within? I think it's everything is still in flux. Of mm-hmm. course, we uh, w- what I am seeing from regulators like the FCA is that they have now, um, I believe, for themselves they found what it should entail. However, there's there's still because there's not been enough, um, um, th- there hasn't been enough companies that have been through regulation have operated under the regulated environment. Uh, there's not enough feedback to the regulators to say what the industry norm is, for example. So they, these will take a couple of years to to formulate so that the regulators understand what is what is actually good and what isn't good. And and I'm I'm thinking that what they will do in the meantime is they'll take a very um, overly cautious approach approach, which will result in um, smaller players being cut out and bigger players um, being allowed to operate. Um, which is one of the things that has to happen through regulation, I guess, as as a as an interim uh, effect. Um, in addition to that, what I'm seeing is uh, with again, as I mentioned, the Mika regulation, which is currently going through the European um, Parliament um, approval process. I've been told that that should take anywhere between eighteen months to two years, and this is what I really really like about that is it's going to be the first um, regulation uh, which will be a full blown license and it will be passportizable across the whole of the EU. And currently, the way things are, it's very, uh, very complicated for an exchange or a, a international crypto business to operate within all of the EU states and, and be certain that no laws are breaking broken because things change daily. It's, it's, it's a minefield in some way. Yeah. Um, do you think they're balancing the risk of getting it wrong and the risk of not doing it fast enough and losing uh, the businesses that would set up in Europe or in the UK to, you know, regions or jurisdictions where they are less careful about the regulations? Um, I think there will be a, a natural outflow of businesses away from Europe and US. I mean, this has happened with uh, CFD trading with FX, right? You had many companies who would set up in San Vincent or somewhere like that in an offshore jurisdiction. Uh, which allowed them to operate in a more nimble and an efficient way, um, and in some, in many ways, this is not to get around regulation. This is just to be able to uh, um, innovate and evolve as a business. And uh, one of the things I, I'd say you have to be very careful about is, is if you look at how things are developing within the cryptocurrency space, the pace of development is 
way faster than any regulatory framework can keep up with. Um, so I think there is a risk that, um, I, I don't know what the solution is to that actually, but there is definitely going to be a risk of uh, companies going elsewhere to experiment there and then come into Europe once the model is working. Maybe that's a good thing. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> Time will tell. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so what can you tell us uh, about your role right now? What, what are you doing with CX? So my official title is executive director. I'm on the board of uh, directors at CXIO and I'm in charge of the um, B2B sales, institutional sales, corporate relations. So essentially anything that is not directly involved with retail investors. And what, what kind of year have you had? Uh, it's been very, very busy. <laughs> and it's every month when I keep thinking, okay, this is going to be the peak of it, 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 it gets more and more intense. So what, what, what have like, what, what impacts does that have on the business on, on your roadmap? Like what have you had to do to respond to, I guess the traditional markets, but also, you know, just COVID and everything like that. Yeah. I, I, well, first of all, COVID, um, I think we're very lucky being in a cryptocurrency business because historically, uh, our employees and I'm sure many of the other companies as well are used to working remotely. So that in many ways, uh, that didn't have an effect on us. Uh, where it did have an effect on us is um, we are um, in communication with, with many banking partners, regulators, etc. And, and those entities usually require physical signatures, paper, etc. And those are quite hard to com combine and, and deliver um, um, rather than doing DocuSign, for example. Yeah. Um, so, so I'd I'd say that didn't have uh, didn't add much of a toll on onto us. Uh, the in 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 the effect actually, what has been happening with the economy on the macro scale has generated more interest, and it keeps generating more and more interest um, within the crypto cryptocurrency sphere with the latest announcements with PayPal, Bank of England, and all of these um, more and more hedge funds piling into this. Uh, this just creates larger volumes, more interest. Um, one of the other things that, that I'd like to flag up here again is pace of innovation. It, it's very, very important to keep developing and releasing new services and products within the cryptosphere. If you stop doing that, then uh, other people will, will take over and they will take the market. So um, I, I think it, it's you have to stay nimble and agile navigating this kind of uh, path of regulation versus innovation versus um, a macro shifts within the cryptocurrency space. So yeah, some of the original, you know, the, the OGs of crypto, they don't necessarily want to see institutions coming into the space. They don't necessarily want to see the regulations because probably a little bit territorial about, you know, the Bitcoin yeah. white paper. Um, <laughs> wh whereas on, on our side of things, I guess we probably recognize the need to, you know, part of that innovation has to be to allow those, institutions to come in so it's something recognizable to what they're used to and it's something that's interoperable with their you know their existing architecture yeah um, I, I i think ideally i would like to see a flow both ways a flow of information and innovation both ways i i think cryptocurrency space and industry could do with more maturity and this is definitely something institutionals can bring they can create better markets uh, less spread less volatility which in turn would allow governments to allow cryptocurrencies to wider uh, populations without um, as strict controls because everything becomes much more stable, etc. At the same time, I'm, I'm pretty certain that um, as, we've, as we've seen, for example, with what Musk has done with SpaceX, there's the, 
the new players on the block can sometimes teach the old guys how to do things better. And uh, it's very easy to take the stance of, we've done this for 100 years, we know better, but um, obviously you can build rockets in a different way and they can land themselves. And people thought it wasn't possible. That's a very cool and optimistic <laughs> outlook to have. I, I like that. Um, we'll probably end there, um, but we'll run through some questions that we ask everyone first, if that's cool. Yep. Okay, so uh, where do you see the crypto industry in one year versus 10 years? Um, that's a tough question. So I, I think I've heard this thing, uh, this saying from somebody on a podcast fairly recently where we we over always overestimate the innovation in the short term and underestimate in the long term. So I, I'm pretty sure whatever I say is going to be in line with that. Um, I, I think within one year, we'll, we will definitely see a market maturing a little bit more. We'll see, uh, we're already seeing uh, pension funds getting in. And that's, I think probably in the one year, I don't think it's going to be a mass market. I think it's uh, it's going to be a shift towards more of a mass market. I I think in 10 years, I would see cryptocurrencies as a full-blown asset class, a standardized asset class. Um, I don't think we will get the rewards and, and the yields that we have been used to just because of uh, the, the nature of markets. If, if a lot more capital flows in and becomes more mature, it will probably, um, say if we take Bitcoin, um, it's probably closest to gold and gold doesn't jump up in price a lot usually unless it's 2020. <laughs> <laughs> uh, everything's different in 2020. Um, if you could change one thing about the industry, what would it be? Oh, um, Hmm. Let me think about this one. Um, um I, I think. Sorry, this one's a tough one. I, yeah, I think about I'm, it, man, I'm enjoying. Cool. I'm enjoying this so much. So it's it's quite hard to say what I'd like to change. I'm I'm loving it. <laughs> I I think. I think what would help is clarity from regulation for for companies like ours, um, so that we. Uh, we have more time to prepare ourselves and, and we have um, we can implement new products and product plans better, I'd say. Fair. Um, what is one piece of technology you couldn't live without? In, in my day-to-day -day life? Yeah, in your life. Uh -huh. um, I'd say, well, this year, definitely Zoom. <laughs> That's, this is how we speak with relatives. This is how we... Um, speak with work, with colleagues. Um, yeah, so I, I think um, video conferencing is probably the number one for me. We sort of become slaves to it to yeah. some extent. Yeah, unfortunately. Are you a camera on or camera off person? Uh, it depends. <laughs> I, I think it depends if it's a call with a client, then I, I have to be polite. Otherwise, I'll keep the camera off unless <laughs> other people turn it on. Yeah. Okay, um, what does your weekend look like? What do you do when, when you get time off? Um, again, 2020 has been very interesting and I... I I've been um, speaking to my wife about this, that the, the, there's a blurred line between weekend and weekday now because there's, there isn't much of a difference. So we had to, um, I've had to deliberately make sure I don't do any work over the weekend. And um, we, we live north of London, uh, right next to Hampstead Heath. So we mostly just go for walks and, and explore Heath, uh, go for runs and yeah. It's a nice part of town. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can imagine that'd be quite nice. Um, is there a film you can watch over and over again and never get tired of? No, I, I, I think I'm the kind of person who likes new things all the time. Um, so I, have there been films that, films that I've watched five, ten times? Yes. But if there's a new one arriving, I'd rather watch a new one. Fair enough. Okay. Do you have any catchphrases you live by or mottos? Uh, no. I think there's too many, <laughs> too many that I like. So I, I wouldn't want to pick one. 
Um, I, I, maybe maybe the only one I can think of is is that, um, and I don't know if it's a motor or a catchphrase, but I, I feel that every so often, say every three years or so, you need to put yourself in, in a very uncomfortable situation so you keep learning. And this may be through a change of career, this may be through... Um, learning new sports or whatever it might be, but it's I think it's just a very positive thing to do. It's good advice. I like that. Who should we all follow on Twitter? Oh, um, Twitter is a fairly new thing for me. So I've I've been following quite a few people. I personally, and maybe that's why partially I I picked the topic. I've been following the whole DeFi community just because I find it very entertaining there's there's a lot of drama happening <laughs> there, there's <laughs> never short of drama yeah, on crypto and, twitter and, that is and, for sure yes <laughs> and how do, how do we follow you on twitter if we want to um i think my twitter handle is anisimov k um so my surname followed by the first name of the first letter of my la- my first name cool what was the what was the last thing that surprised you Oh, um <laughs> i'm i'd say so i became a father of uh, two weeks ago and um, I, I was thank you and I was there through the whole process and uh, I, when they gave me my my daughter and and she looked at me and that was I, I didn't realize that that babies immediately have uh, I guess so so, so much uh, uh, so much consciousness in their eyes and I, I think it's like you 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 look at the baby and you see it's a real person it's not just it's not just a baby it's it's a human being so that that was quite special that's beautiful <laughs> i mean i've got more questions but i can't ask them now because that's just too beautiful um constantly look it's been great having you here uh, thank, thank you. you very much for being on the show um, we look forward to catching up with you hopefully next year thanks tyler thank you and to our listeners, if you haven't already seen Constantine's show and tell video, please go to our YouTube page. It's Copper HQ, or you can find it on our Twitter or on our website, copper.co forward slash insights. There you can also sign up for our newsletter, which goes out every Monday morning and includes links to all the week's top stories, as well as any updates from the wider team here at Copper. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please be sure to give us a good review in whichever streaming platform you're using. And of course, subscribe. If you want to get in touch with me, you can, Tyler, on Twitter at CryptoTSK, or you can email me directly, tyler.kenyon at copper.co. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, or if you know someone who should be, please give us a shout. We're here to talk all things institutional crypto. This show is made possible because of the technical and creative wizardry of Ben Silvertown and Tally Spear, with support from Maley Mountford and Eva Lila. New episodes come out fortnightly-ish. And in the meantime, stay safe. <laughs>